All right, I'm here with JJ Pavoni, who used to be an F-15 fighter pilot, uh, became a conscientious objector, and we're going to hear about that. Um, now is an entrepreneur and a dad, a voluntarist, and Australian economics enthusiast. So welcome to the show. Thank um, you for having me, Brenny. Yeah, so, so just to get started, I, th I think you spoke with Tom Woods about this a while ago, and I think I heard the episode, I think I listened at the time, but could you just give us the, the nitty gritty, what happened? How did you go from being a, a pilot with the military to a conscientious objector? Yeah, so we, um, first of all, a little bit of background on us. My wife and I uh, spent about a decade in the military. We had about 10 different combat tours, Afghanistan, and then my wife was Horn of Africa and a few other places. Um, big picture we we thought that the war and the whole effort just didn't make sense on a, a number of levels mostly that it transitioned from being um go after the folks that were responsible from 9 11 to much more of a regime change nation building effort and we listened to ron paul start speaking you know in around the 2011 2012 time frame and then fell down the rabbit hole you know eventually found rothbard learned about voluntarism and all of this really aligned with our experience overseas. And so, um, you know, we went from being people who thought we were um, defending our country to people who realized that this whole effort was um, misguided. And, you know, we eventually felt like it was morally wrong what we were doing and decided to leave uh, based on conscience. And, um, you know, we went through the process of submitting conscience objector um, that was supported basically from the lower levels of the military all the way up to higher headquarters. And then it eventually got denied for both of us. And uh, we got, you know, discharged, um, you know, it, like administratively in a different way. But, um, you know, it was an interesting experience. I feel in some ways a little bit lucky that our system is not as bad as it is in China. And in other ways, you know, I feel like there's so much that we could improve um, just towards making our country more peaceful and maybe more neutral towards foreigners, um, you know, you know the drill. Yeah, <laughs> so was, was there, I'm just curious, was there anything, was there anything in particular in you, your or your wife's um, personal experience in the military, anything that stood out as like confirmation of what you heard Ron Paul saying? Well, you know, first of all, we started in Afghanistan, which is, somewhat more logical and that the al-Qaeda folks that are allegedly responsible for 9-11, um, you know, were hiding out there. So from a, you know, from a law, you know, from a uh, justice standpoint, obviously bringing the folks that blow up several enormous buildings and murder several thousand people um, makes a ton of sense. And I think in like 2003, when they pivoted to Iraq, you know, Iraq had never attacked the United States. So for me, right off the bat, it is um, morally indefensible because the only way to use violence is in self-defense uh, along moral grounds, personally. Um, I didn't think about all this at the time. You know, I was in my early 20s, and there's a lot of different things uh, that go into, you know, the voluntarist worldview, which I wasn't privy to at the time. But little things like that started adding up. You know, the huge expense on all this military equipment that was basically staying, you know, in like a... MRAP graveyard over in Afghanistan, the huge waste of, um, you know, gas, 
on these jets that we'd fly every day. And then, you know, a lot of the tactical initiatives that they would do in these countries would be like in Afghanistan, for example. Um, they had a big push in 2009, 2011 to integrate with the locals. They'd go into these tiny little village areas and send troops in there. And it, it doesn't help anything. It just became, you know, basically um, political propaganda to say this is what we're doing. And um, in reality, on the ground, it was just you know, the locals would try to get some money from the Americans and the Taliban guys would just come into that area and skirmish with them. And it was mostly a waste of time and nonsensical, um, you know, political excuse that they were actually doing something. So the entire effort in Afghanistan, at least in my opinion, is just a big joke. You know, we've been there for 20 years now. There's absolutely no reason to be there any further. And everybody knows it. It's just that no one's willing to say, the plain truth that we should just come home and, and give up on the, the the effort, you know, sort of like the Soviets did when uh, the same exact thing happened for them. Right, so. right. And the British before them. I mean, it's like, right. we just don't learn. Or somebody doesn't learn. Somebody doesn't. Um, or yes. new people that are relearning the same old lessons, I guess. Right. Why even study, study history? Yeah, and it's hard. To, it's hard to, um, I sometimes forget that it's been 20 years. You know, it doesn't it's, it's, there's so much has happened in that time, but like, yeah, it's, it's been, and, and not just the 20 years of being in Afghanistan, but from 9-11 onwards, just seeing what's happened to our country. What, what have you seen in that department? Well, um, well, first, just on the point of 20 years, I think it's interesting to see that you, you had some 18 year old, you know, army enlisted folks that were there in 2001. And now their kid is 18 years old enlisted and there yeah. in 2020, um, still doing the same pointless thing, you know, war forever. Um, you know, in regards to how our country has changed, I, I just I think it's really sad. And I think it's very predictable from an Austrian like economics perspective, um, what's happening. You know, basically, since they put in place the central bank, it totally distorts like all of the signals that people make on decision making. So, you know, there's no pushback against the wars because people don't directly feel the taxation that has to be raised to pay for them. It's just printed and nobody understands where the price increases are coming from. You know, there's an enormous propaganda department in, you know, the, the colleges these days with the whole Keynesian economics theory that's Mm -hmm. garbage um you know that's just basically government propaganda for printing money and stealing people's wealth so that they can do whatever they want you know in the central politburo so war is unfortunately a major consequence of that because it otherwise can't be funded because most people don't want anything to do with it we just want to live our lives you know raise our kids um do our jobs and and live peacefully and there's just a small group of people that are obsessed with um power and you know making money dishonestly um, and unfortunately, they run stuff. So yeah. So could you say a little bit more about that? I think um, a lot of people, especially for people who haven't studied Austrian economics, the the connection between um, a central bank and war is not necessarily clear. Um, could you maybe just say a little bit more about that? Like how how is it that you know the the ability to sort of create money um, empowers the war machine and not all of us. Yeah. So, you know, the, the big picture is that wars cost a lot of money and uh, you have to divert resources from, you know, peaceful means like building homes or growing food or building iPhones to, um, 
destructive means like bombs, airplanes that are dropping those bombs, tanks, soldiers and their clothes, you know, their, their food. And those things and, you know, the people working in them are not making people's lives better. They're just simply um, blowing stuff up and killing people. And, you know, it would be one thing if they were doing so in self-defense and it was absolutely necessary um, because obviously you can't have, um, you know, peaceful economy if you're just being, um, you know, attacked. So you have to defend yourself. But beyond that, which is where we are, you, you know, it, it steals a lot of resources from everybody else to do things that are actually non-productive and make us all much worse off. So how are they able to get those resources? Well, the traditional mechanism has been through taxation. And, and there's a there's a very common sense pushback against taxation. If someone were to say, hey, we want to go into Iraq, um, it's going to cost every man, woman, and child an extra $5,000. Um, and they actually put that to people for the vote. What do you think people would say? They yeah, there'd say, be tremendous pushback. Yeah. No, thanks. I think I'll buy a TV and, um, right. you know, whatever else I want to do with this. I, those resources would go to things that actually make people's lives better. You know, instead, um, as they know that the pushback would be there with taxes, um, you know, they just spend the money um, and the Fed or whatever central bank, uh, if they're able to, which in our country we are because uh, we have the exorbitant privilege of the national or the, the global reserve currency still where a lot of different foreigners use um, mm-hmm. the dollar as a reserve. They can just print the money. The Fed can monetize it um, or they, they spend the money. The Fed can monetize it and um, then they just use it. And what happens is instead of people resisting, they just all of a sudden um, notice that prices are more and their their quality of life is lower. And mm-hmm. therefore, um, it's actually terribly destructive because because then a lot of times the businesses get blamed you know the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The people actually producing stuff get blamed for things that have nothing to do with them and they're the they're the ones doing good things you know versus what what it really is is a an interesting cartel between the you know the the bank and the the issuers of the money and the government and it also the the other point um other than just sort of rising prices is you know, in a healthy economy, you would see prices for a lot of things dropping. I mean, we see this like in computers and a lot of high tech things. Um, so even even if you're not seeing dramatic rises in prices, the fact that even if prices were just sort of staying the same, that's also an indication of, you know, that, that you know, real prices actually are um, going up. Hang on one second. I'm going to have to interrupt for just one second. Yep, no worries. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah, so I, I was just pointing out, you know, it's um, it's not necessarily just just rising prices, but even if, if prices are staying stable and not dropping, that can also be an indication that there's inflation going on. But people, as you said, don't necessarily notice it, or or don't necessarily don't attribute it to the causes. Don't don't really recognize what the causes of that are, and then it becomes, you know evil capitalists charging too much money or, you know, not paying their workers enough. And, um, some people's standard of living really declines and, but there's not a clear, you know, again, unless you've really sort of looked into how this works, there's not a clear linkage, I think, in most people's minds to their, the immediate effects in their lives and what's actually caused it. Right. Yeah. So, 
you know, deflation is actually a really good thing. Dropping prices is only good for people. It, it has zero negative effects, like in and of itself. It, it just makes things cheaper, which means you can buy more of them, which means your quality of life goes up. The only issue with deflation is when you have a debt-based monetary system where a lot of people have made bets on the unknowable future, and then they're wrong about those bets. So they've blown up what they expect the future to be. And when they actually get there, it's less than they expect. And so there's default. So you had an artificial um, boom, and then it corrects itself when the future turns out to be different than what you thought. So debtors don't like deflation because it makes it um, difficult to pay on the bets that they took out. But we don't even need debt in society. You could have an entirely equity-based, um, savings-based economy and deflation will be entirely good. It's just that we have so many powerful interests that like inflation, like the governments or big corporations that took on a lot of debt. And um, it makes it a lot easier for them to pay off those debts if they print the money and inflate the uh, prices and you know deflate the value of their debt. Yeah. But that can only continue for so long, right? And what... I don't know. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> again, I don't know the future. You, you would have thought that maybe it would have uh, come to an end a long time ago, but, um, you know, I did, I've, I've predicted it and been wrong in the past. I said, Oh God, by, you know, I think I was, I think I was saying, you know, in the first Obama's, but by his, the end of his first term, we'd be seeing this implode and we didn't, um, you know, so. I, I think that the, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, I think it goes away when there's competition. And I think the reason it hasn't gone away is that there's no competition. And what I mean by competition is that, is there a country out there that can compete both militarily or in like trust with the U S government? You know, no one trusts the communist party of China, uh, even less. Um, so until there's someone that offers an alternative, that's more trustworthy, that's not handicapped by all the rules that the government's put on it. Um, I think it goes on indefinitely until, you know, perhaps it spirals out of control um, with the prices. That's the one thing that could bring it down without competition. Right. You know, but who knows when that happens? There's, there's actually a lot of deflationary forces counteracting the money printing. So it, it kind of, I think, depends on whether or not there's another alternative available to people. And right now there's, there's just not. Other than cryptocurrency. Um, is that what you're getting at, or you, you're well, talking like, about actual other another? Yeah, gold, silver, crypto. Gold, silver, crypto would all be great alternatives. But here's the problem: is that they slap a 25% capital gains tax on gold, silver, and crypto, so that makes it uncompetitive. So if you took away mm -hmm. those and they allowed free competition in money, yeah, the system would go away tomorrow or very soon. But they don't, you know. And so you have to have a system that's not attacked by the government power interests. Right. Well, they're never going to allow, I mean, they, they understand how this works too. So it's, they're never going to allow to the extent that it's within their control. My thinking is we just have to come up with tools of, you know, maybe it's more anonymous crypto. Maybe it's, it's, you know, transactions that can't be traced. Maybe it's, you know, something along this, this is why Ross Ulbricht is still in prison. You know, I mean, if you start to really create systems that are outside of their control, I think that really is a threat to what they're up to. What do you, what do you think about things like that? 
Yeah. I, you know, the only problem I see with that is that, um, you know, a lot of people just will do what they're told. And yeah. if they pass a law that says you have to do this, that, or the other thing, you know, the IRS is going to come and whatever, you can't trade in this thing, even though it's anonymous. Um, people won't, you know, there's a small group of people like you and I perhaps, and the crypto anarchists or whomever that would do that. But it's also risky because of the people mm -hmm. in government with guns. And so I think it's limited in terms of adopters because it, it sort of takes away anyone who's not willing to take the risk. You know, I don't know computer crypto cryptography that well to say mm -hmm. that I really trust whether right. or not and most people it's actually don't. anonymous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I know how powerful uh, the government is and the NSA and all of them, and they may very well actually be able to break that cryptography, even though you think it's right. anonymous. I don't know. But that's the point is there's, there's actually some question marks there that make um, it an issue still. Yeah. 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 Do you think though that we're getting to the point um, where the costs of complying are becoming too great. Um, I mean, I'm thinking like what, what we, what we've seen with the lockdowns where hairdressers are standing up and saying, no, I'm not going to close down. I need to feed my family. Do you feel like there's a point, do you feel like we're getting close to that point where people are, are really having to choose between feeding their families or, you know, pleasing the government you know, I think people, people, a lot of people are sort of getting, are stuck in a, in a tough place right now. Do you feel like, do you see that around you? Do you feel like we're getting to a breaking point? You know, I don't know. Uh, again, I, I, hate, I hesitate to make predictions about where we are, or where we're going in the future, but I'll, I'll just tell you what I see is, is that, you know, as long as they keep enough people working, you know, they can keep monetizing and handing out paychecks to the other chunk, um, mm -hmm. you know, Obviously, during this latest bailout during the coronavirus, um, you know, government like shutdown, they, um, you know, they handed out money to people and the governments that shut down are getting huge bailouts from the Fed so that they're not getting the market signal that says you can't just shut down your entire economy. They again, they just print the money and bail themselves out. And so long as they're able to do that and they keep enough people working that the money doesn't completely devalue overnight, mm -hmm. then it could go on for a long time. Um, so I don't know, but I do think that it's really important, again, to get rid of the central banks because, you know, a guy like Gavin Newsom in our, in our state, in California, shuts down 20 million workers' jobs and thousands of businesses that people have worked for for years or decades. Yeah. You know, those people lose major um, revenue. And um, you know, they don't need to do that. You know, you can voluntarily protect yourself from coronavirus without having to have a state mandate that, you know, you shut down your business. Um, but that signal never gets to the government when they're able to monetize the uh, bad decision and just bail themselves out. You know, right. California went from like a $20 billion surplus to like 70 billion in the hole or something like that. And it doesn't matter because, they're going to be able to pay their bills by getting a bailout from the Fed. So right. the important right. thing is to stop the bailout mechanism so that these signals, you know, actually get to people. In Sweden, they didn't have the luxury of doing that. The, the ECB couldn't bail out Sweden. Why do you think they didn't shut down the entire economy? Right. They, would they were going to pay the costs of doing that. Exactly. So yeah. they, they actually have a real risk reward decision to make, whereas we do not, or these, these people in politics out here do not. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it looks, it looks not just in California, but nationwide. I mean, with all the businesses that are going to shut down, you know, some of the, a great number of them permanently, um, it's just this massive wealth transfer. It's, it's, it seems to, to be taking, you know, destroying a whole bunch of small businesses. You know, Amazon's doing great. Uh, a lot of big corporations aren't going to, they're not going to fold. Um, what do you think the world is going to, I mean, I know you don't want to make predictions, but what do you feel like the world's going to look like um, 10 years down the line in America? I mean, I see it. To me, the prevailing winds is that it's going to be more government ownership, more government control, more socialism, more nationalization of different industries, more um, destruction of civil liberties, more growth of the military police state. I don't think that stuff's going to change, largely speaking. Because I think it's on a general trajectory the moment you have a central bank. So until you mm -hmm. abolish the central bank, I don't think the actual um, larger picture trajectory actually changes. So that's the only issue in my mind that really matters. If you get sound money, you get rid of the central banks. Everything reverses because you get honest time preference and real signals in the market. And until then, um, you know, you see the degradation of civilization, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but given that the central bank is what gives them all this power, gives them the ability to do all this, you know, they're not going to get rid of it voluntarily. So what can we do? Well, um, yeah, you're right. They're not going to get rid of it voluntarily. And um, the good thing to note is that they don't have absolute power. You know, all of mm -hmm. us have an influence. Um, they don't control the whole world. They get a, um, to use what, what means they have to achieve the ends that they want. And so do we. So, the more means that those of us who have, you know, our beliefs have and are willing to, um, you know, peacefully stand behind, um, you know, the better chance we have. I don't know uh, as to whether or not that changes anything, but I really like Ron Paul's idea of just changing people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, you change the beliefs, you change the attitudes, you eventually change the action and things will change. But you have to go after the core of people's beliefs, which, which is why I think like Rothbardianism, which is a secular moral belief system essentially is so important because it's grounded in actual truth in economics. It's grounded in truth in human action and it's, it's morally defensible. So, you know, I think people need to look up, you know, voluntarism and Rothbard and read the Austrian economists and learn about peace and liberty and, and allowing people to do, whatever they want in their own sphere, so long as they're not violent or aggressive against your property. And, you know, that's the, that's the ticket. So the more people get that, the better off we are. It's just a, it's a lot to teach someone, you know, so we start at home, we homeschool all of our children, you know, we home birth when we're, we're born. And, um, you know, we, we try to support people like Joel Salatin in agriculture and um, opting out of the big government, big in insurance in medical, you know, and doing it naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't believe in that stuff. So, um, and the reason we don't use it is because of our beliefs. So as many people change their beliefs and hear new ideas, you know, the better. So that's at least one small thing we can do. Yeah. It's, it's one of, this is going to sound weird, but one of the encouraging things to me is, um, how, how the, I would say the, the powers that be are, are trying to sort of foment discord right now and how they're really pushing the fear agendas, you know, more than they, they always do it. But to me, it kind of looks like 
it kind of looks like acts of desperation on on the part of a large mass you know a, a dino, I, I think of it as a dinosaur you know it's this massive dinosaur it's this old authoritarian structure way of doing things and i do think you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of sort of economic ignorance out there. There's a lot of very few people know about the things that you're talking about, but at the same time, I feel like there is a tremendous dissatisfaction with how things are. And this, I just, I just keep picturing this dinosaur sort of fumbling about and screaming. And it's like, it's, it's getting desperate is the way I feel. And so, you know, these, this, um, you know, the response to, to COVID-19 and really sort of pitting people against each other and inciting fear, which is, you know, our, our government is, is great at that. Um, do you see an upside in all of that at all? Or am I just sort of being well, way too I, optimistic? I agree with your, like, bird's eye view of what's happening. You know, the thrashing dinosaur is, you know, probably probably fairly accurate um you know but you would you'd have better time asking tom woods he's a better historian than i am obviously but i think that you you could probably compare it um fairly obviously to like the roman empire and i would imagine at some point that was also a thrashing dinosaur i just mm-hmm. but here's a question right so how long did it thrash it, right. it may have thrashed for several generations right you know we may right. all be long gone by the time the thing you know actually kicks the can and um i don't know um but you know, here we are and, you know, we get to, we get to control what, what we can control. So. Yeah. And the one thing, or one of the things that we have that they didn't have in Roman times was um, we have means of communicating with each other across the globe. And one of the things that I think is the most important is um, building communities and finding those people, you know, there's a fine line between building communities and sort of isolating everyone else. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to reach out to other people who sort of share our worldview, who want a free society, because that's not everybody. Um, And just let, you know, A, let people know that they're not alone. And B, how can we, you know, just within our own groups, how can we work to, you know, not live in this dystopian new normal that they have planned for us? How can we create another another way of living and so i mean i really agree with that i think the getting together of people of like mind so it what you're saying it in terms of voluntarists if we were able to get a group of voluntarists similar to what they're doing with the free state project but actually mm-hmm. like austro libertarians that are that are ancap voluntarists if we were able to get a group of us together say in like idaho and we were able to actually build like a local economy that's largely based on you know, trade with um, or support of one another, at least in some way, shape or form, you know, but also solidarity with each other in terms of resisting, say, the IRS. I mean, you could actually have a group of several thousand families in an area that were like, we're not going to put up with it when you send the police to our homes. And guess what? We're all armed and mm-hmm. we are willing to, to defend our neighbor. Um, that would be powerful. You know, yeah. the key would be getting a group of folks like yourself and my family and, you know, the Daniel McAdams and those of us um, out there that are saying the same stuff. Um, Definitely the- want him there. Definitely want him. To- <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, the, yeah. you know, I, I, can, I mean, I have a whole list of, I, I can think of all these people. <laughs> I've got a whole list in my head of who's going to, who's going to be in our, right. I don't, not commune. Commune is sort of the word that springs to mind, but 
you're not talking about a commune, you're talking about like an actual community of of independent families living, you know, supporting each other. And I think there's a A capitalist, right? Yeah. But I, but I feel like there's that sentiment is really widespread right now. I hear a lot of people and it's not only NCAPs, it's, you know, people in the health freedom movement. Um, It's also people, a lot of people in, in special needs communities are, you know, they want a place or I should say we want a place where, you know, the people around us get it and where, you know, kind of everyone's dealing with similar issues and our kids will just be that much safer. So there are communities that have, there, there are groups of people that have specific needs and then there are groups of people that have specific values. And I think a lot, a lo- I just hear a lot of people talking right now about starting intentional communities and they may not all, you know, it might be that, okay, there's a bunch of ANCAPs over here. There's a bunch of sort of minimal statists over here there's a bunch of people who only care about health freedom right here or, you know, people who want religious, you know, or a particular religious group over here, but they can all support each other because I think they, they all have the same value of leave us alone and let us, let us have a community of people, you know, not, not being, not, not having our lives dictated to us by the state. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you apply the uh, market principle, which is that, like you said, I think there's a real demand out there for it. So so here's the question, right? Is like, is one or a group of us going to get together and and work towards actually providing a solution? Because we can talk all day Mm -hmm. and that solution, someone's looking for someone to lead and put it out there. So, you know, it's incumbent on people like yourself or me or a group of us that actually decide to um, dedicate some of our time and our energy and our actual like you know opportunity cost of life to doing that um yeah yeah you know and 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 then you know if you build it they will come perhaps maybe not that's the risk you take but if you don't try nothing happens so right right but as you said the demand the demand is definitely there so it's a question of putting it together and it you know the more the more that we're in this um sort of the world of the internet that we're connected by the internet rather than living in geographical communities. I also wonder, is there, does this have to be, does this kind of thing have to be a geographical community? And the more I think about it, the more I feel like it kind of does, you know, you sort of do need geographical proximity to, for, for what we're talking about here anyway. Um, I I don't see a way around that really. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have your, um, you know, your idea tunnels in the internet where everyone's on the same page. But if we're all dispersed all over the place, it's very easy for, you know, the state, the established institution to to pretty much do whatever it wants. I, I think geography is like a, a really important aspect of it. I think actually being in the same spot with people. I mean, you know, like, I don't know if you have family all over the place or in different areas. It's hard to maintain relationships with folks that you don't see on a regular basis, you know, yeah. and you grow a lot closer yeah. with the ones that you actually spend real time with instead of just time, um, you know, periodically giving them a call or whatever. So geography does matter in a lot of important ways. Yeah. Yeah. And also just being there, as you said, you know, if someone's at f- being threatened, you know, just being there to mm-hmm. as a physical support. I'm going to keep thinking back to the the hairdresser in Dallas who had. Do you need to head out? No, no, sorry, I just had okay. to. 
Okay. Um, you know, who had, there were these, these, these armed guys standing outside of her, of her salon, making sure that she felt safe going in to open up. And, right. you know, at some point it does boil down to a physical presence. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. Um, we're getting, we're getting uh, close to the end here, but I just, I wanted to ask you, um, a couple of things. I don't know if you saw the video I posted about the former Marine, who was talking to, this was at a protest, a, a health freedom protest. Actually, no, it was an anti-lockdown protest in Sacramento. And um, Cordy Williams, uh, he's a former Marine, um, now a chiropractor, I think. But he got up there and he talked to this massive line of police in riot gear and was just, you know, it was, the whole thing was so peaceful and it was so coming from a place of love. It was really, you know, they weren't, yelling or screaming or attacking these guys. They were just saying, you know, we understand you're in a tough position. Um, we believe what you're doing is wrong. You know, we should be able to protest this. The lockdowns are wrong. We think you're suffering from it too. And just asking them to stand down. Um, and there was one moment where they did, we don't know exactly what happened or, you know, what was going on in their minds, but what would you say as someone who's been in the military machine what would you say to people who are either in the military or in police forces who are, who are being asked or will be asked to act against, to, to see Americans as the enemy, basically to suppress freedom of speech, the right to demonstrate, maybe to come and to, to support forced vaccination or forced contact tracing, what would you say to the people in those positions? So I think that unfortunately, you know, society degrades in terms of freedom very gradually. So little progressive steps towards, um, you know, government control over every aspect of your life is typically how it happens rather than in one fail swoop. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's incumbent upon people to really think hard about their own moral values rather than the constitution or whatever, um, you know, document um, they purport to believe in, you know, that does not matter. What matters is moral values. And this is why I really like the Rothbardian like value system. You know, I subjectively choose that value system, but it's consistent. It helps you understand like right and wrong from a, you know, self-ownership perspective. And, and what I would tell people in general is that you need to think really hard about potential situations ahead of time tell yourself what you're going to do and then hold yourself accountable when you are faced with that particular situation. You know, everyone's threshold is different. And I think unfortunately, largely speaking, the police are going to do what they're told. There will always be some really principled people that will um, resign or will um, refuse. Um, but the large mass probably will not in most circumstances. And I think we've seen that historically, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, Germany, World War II is a pretty pertinent example of that. Um, so it's really incumbent upon, um, you know, the population itself and the beliefs of the, the people at large to, to combat that because the politicians really in our system only respond to not being reelected. And, you know, otherwise there is very little um, that you can do to, to change things. So you know, and the unfortunate thing is that the choices that most people make between one side or the other are, are you know, baked in the cake to be a bad choice no matter what. Um, now that you've brought that up, what is your take on voting? 
Um, I think that I'm a big fan of voting in a, a referendum. I always vote in referendums and I always mm -hmm. vote in self-defense of the individual 100%. So I, I vote against um, the government being able to take on debt to be able to spend money. I, I personally think that government should be um, financed via voluntary donation. And I get laughed at a lot for that, but I think mm -hmm. that it should be based on volunteers and voluntary donation and absent that it's a racket. So I vote against um, the government's ability to take from anybody um, or to do anything that's anti-liberty. Um, in terms of voting for people, um, I tend not to vote for um, the lesser of two evils. I tend to think that that's um, a guaranteed way to get bad folks, but I do vote um, oftentimes for like third parties, like the Libertarian Party, um, because I think it's important to get competition. So in government, I think the best thing you can have is competition. So I tend to support um, any, like, you know, the development of additional um, parties such that there are more voices out there at least that can be heard. So I think it's a good mm -hmm. thing to have, you know, the Libertarian Party and the Green Party and the Constitution Party and the Peace and Freedom Party in addition to the you know, the Republican and the Democrat Party. And the more of them that we had, the more independent voices we could at least get out on the stage so that they could hear different ideas and people would start thinking instead of basically being stuck with the same um, semi, like I would call it, you know, corporatist or mercantilist or yeah. even, even yeah. fascist type of system that we have, which is heavy government, you know, influence on what would otherwise be a free economy. So, and you typically have a fascist system whenever you have a, a central bank. So um, in my view, we don't have a free economy until we have a, you know, the abol abolishment of a central bank. And, um, you know, the more people that get out there and get that and have an independent platform on which to say it, the better. So that's yeah. my take. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, we've got to wrap up. Let's do this again. Let's, um, I, I want to talk more about these, the intentional communities. And I know a lot of other people do too. So, Let's plan to catch up a little bit later and keep that conversation going. Okay, I, I would love that. I really appreciate uh, you having me on, and it, yeah. it's very nice to meet you. Hopefully, we'll get to catch up with you and, and the family in person sometime. Yes, yeah, well, we're in the same state, so, you know, maybe yeah. see you in the gulag. For, for now. <laughs> okay, all right, thanks for coming right. on. Cheers, take care. Okay, bye.